Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. This is our weekly catechism class and today we're on Lord's Day 14, question 35, and we're titling this class, The Word Became Flesh. In this lesson, we're going to look at a very difficult subject, but nevertheless, a subject that we should never shirk. It's a subject that is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. It's the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ. John the Apostle sets this out as a test for orthodoxy in 1 John 4 and verse 1 to 3. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now is already in the world. Let's just read Matthew's account of the angel's message to Joseph, the young Mary's espoused, or as we would perhaps say, engaged husband. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thy son of David. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So our catechist asks, what do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The answer we must give is the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin we'll begin to look at that question and answer in this podcast. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast.
In our previous classes, we have learned about the eternal Sonship of Christ, and we've explored the meaning of the phrase God's only begotten Son. We now know that Jesus is true God and that he was not a created person, but that he eternally existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal with all the attributes of deity of the same substance or the same essence, we might say, as the Father but that in order to save us, to rescue us from our sin and from the consequences of that sin, he became flesh, he became man. John 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this lesson, to some extent, deals with how that happened. What do we mean when we say that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary? Before we go any further, let's make something very clear. The physical birth of Jesus was exactly like every other birth. So Mary went into labour, she had all the pains of labour, she bore her son in a completely natural manner. What was different about the event was not the actual birth, but the supernatural conception by which Christ was born. Now what do I mean by conception? A while back, Jude, my grandson, who is five, asked me a very awkward question. He'd been looking at a booklet sitting on the table, a booklet on abortion, and it had an image of an unborn baby on the front cover. So he asked me what it was, and I told him it was a baby that was still inside its mummy's tummy. Granda, how does the baby get inside the mummy's tummy? Now there's no way I'm starting to explain the mechanics of that to a five-year-old, especially not when his parents are absent. So I told him there was an egg, and the egg was fertilised by the daddy, and the baby would grow. I was very greatly relieved when he looked at me very sceptically and said, Granda, eggs come from birds. It gave me the opportunity to distract him and show him pictures of birds' nests on the phone and get him talking about baby chicks. That's a much easier subject to talk about when you're five. Now, presumably, since you're listening to this podcast, you already know how a baby is normally conceived. In the case of Mary and the baby Jesus, that part of the process just simply didn't happen. Mary was a virgin. She had never experienced any form of sexual penetration. She was still a virgin when the baby was born. Now, she did not remain a virgin, despite what the Roman Catholic Church might say. The Roman Catholic Church has a doctrine of Mary's virginity enduring before and during and after the birth of Christ. Now, that's just plainly unbiblical. Matthew chapter 13 verse 55 and 56 talks about, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? 56 and his sisters, are they not all with us? Galatians 1 and verse 19, Paul writes, But other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. Jesus had brothers and sisters in the flesh, stepbrothers and sisters, who were born to both Joseph and Mary naturally and naturally conceived after the Lord's birth. Now, when a baby is born, how often do the parents, or, or more likely the grandparents, look at the wee newborn child and they'll say something like, oh, isn't he just a wee miracle? Now, in a sense, that's true, thanks to the providence of God who gave us that child. But the child was not made by a miracle. It was made by a natural, biological process that God has ordained to be so. The conception of Christ, on the other hand, was a miracle. It was brought about by God, 
It was brought about in a manner that had never happened before and has never happened since. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, so let's go back to our instructor in the Catechism and see four important aspects of the birth of Christ. And the first of these is that the Catechist makes clear that Jesus was and is always fully divine. Our instructor writes, The eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God. So the very first thing we are taught is that when the one only begotten eternal Son of God came into this world, he did not cease to be God. Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that he laid aside his majesty that he humbled himself to become a man, but it does not say that he laid aside his divinity. All the time that Jesus was in the flesh on this earth, he remained fully God. He was not God on the inside and man on the outside. He was not half man and half God. He was fully God and he was fully man, simultaneously. Look at John chapter 10 and verse 30. And there we read, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Say ye of him, whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thy blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Jesus, fully God. To his disciples in John 14 and verse 9, Jesus said, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? To say that Jesus laid aside his divinity when he came into this world is a heresy. It's often known as canotic Christology, and it's often the belief of liberal scripture-denying members of the visible church. Those men who deny the virgin birth and the miracles of Christ and his literal resurrection. And how easily can we be misled by such people? I was standing at the door of a church and complaining about a hymn that had been sung during the service, a hymn I hadn't chosen, a hymn I thought was so doctrinally, linguistically and liturgically impoverished that it should never be sang. I had exclaimed I thought it was sheer rubbish. And the man I was talking to scolded me, and he said, you need to remember that good hymnology is not necessarily good theology. My response to that was, then just let's stop singing hymns. One of those hymns is written by Charles Wesley. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. The line that says emptied himself of all but love is seriously problematical. I don't think for a moment that Wesley was a heretic or a canotic Christology believer, but that line is just plain wrong. It's incorrect doctrine and it's seriously misleading. Jesus did not empty himself of all but love. He was God incarnate and he remained so. And thus his miracles can make perfect sense. 
the God who created the world and who created vines and who engineered the process of fermentation would have no problem at a wedding in Cana of Galilee turning water into wine. John said in 1 John 5 and verse 20, And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus was, and is, and always will be, fully divine. And yet he was also fully human. Our catechist says he took upon himself true human flesh, true human nature rather, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. In Galatians 4 and 4, we read, But the fullness, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Although Jesus never ceased to be fully divine, he was also fully human. He was a man, a Jewish man. Paul tells us so in Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. He talks about whose are the fathers. He's speaking about the Jews. Whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Jesus came into the world as a human baby, born in a mucky stable. He was a carpenter's stepson who would have worked hard in the joinery shop in Nazareth. He went to school. In Matthew 13 and verse 55, the Jews said, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? He would have had skelfs in his hands. For those of you who don't come from Northern Ireland, skelfs are splinters of wood. He had calloused hands, he had a sore back, he got tired, he was a human being, and he got that human nature from Mary, his mother. And of course, that was prophesied away back in Genesis 3 and verse 15, where the promise was made, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, talking to the snake, the serpent, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and I shall bruise his heel. He was the seed of the woman. But why did Jesus need to take upon himself true human nature from Mary alone? Why could a man not be involved? Well, we need to ask the question, what does a father give to his children at conception? Well, the answer, of course, simply is life. It begins at conception, but with that life he also gives them death. From our fathers we inherit Adam's sinful nature. We are sinners from conception. David taught us this in Psalm 51. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul agreed with this in Romans 5 and 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But Christ was born without sin. He was born without the sinful human condition. That does not imply that the act of conceiving a baby in the natural sense is in and of itself a sinful act. It's not. Just as long as it is within the marriage union of a man and a woman. It is just to say that by the natural process of conception, we inherit Adam's sin. And the ultimate result of that sin is death. And that's why Jesus took his true human nature, not from a man, but from Mary, his mother. Because he 
was sinless. Now, how did that work? We've looked at how he retained both his divinity and how he became human flesh, how he was fully God and fully man. Let's see something of the mystery of that conception. Let's get to that actual process of the virgin conception. And in fact, it's not really a mystery at all. In fact, the Bible tells us exactly how it happened. Our catechist says it was through the working of the Holy Spirit. And that's expanded for us in Luke chapter 1. In Luke 1, we discover that Mary herself, when the angel revealed God's plan to her, wanted to know herself how such a thing could happen. Let's read it. Luke 1, verse 34 to 35. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be? saying, I know not a man. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. God ordained it. Remember that verse in Galatians 4 and 4? It was when the fullness of time was come that God sent forth his Son made of a woman. It was God's appointed time. In his sovereign purpose, God sent his Son into the world. And then the Holy Ghost made it happen. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Now, why would anyone consider this as impossible? Christians especially should be well aware of the work of the Holy Spirit in creation. Go way back to the very beginning of time in Genesis 1 and verse 2 and read, The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Amplified Bible paraphrases this for us. It says the earth was formless and void or a waste and emptiness and darkness was upon the face of the deep primal ocean that covered the unformed earth and the Spirit of God was moving, hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. In the virgin conception, Mary's womb was empty, barren we might say, until like in the beginning the Holy Spirit brooded over her. God's creative, life-imparting spirit, implanting life where there was no life. Psalm 36 and verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. The Holy Spirit in the incarnation, doing exactly what he had done at creation. Just like he demonstrated in Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones, where dry, worthless, dead bones came to life when the Spirit of the Lord God came and breathed upon them. Ezekiel 37 and verse 9, Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. If the Holy Spirit can breathe on dry bones and make them live, 
if the Holy Spirit can breathe and hover over formless waste and bring about creation. The Holy Spirit hovered over the Virgin Mary and a miracle happened. God ordained it. The Holy Spirit enacted it. The Eternal Son wanted it. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7 and that passage it tells us that he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. This is something that we must be aware of. The Lord Jesus did not have to be forced or coerced into coming on this rescue mission for you and for me. When you read Philippians 2 very carefully, you will see that he made himself of no reputation, that it was him who took upon himself the form of a man, that he was made in the likeness of a man, that he went to the cross for you and me, that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, that he laid down his life for others. His becoming man was an act of love for lost sinners, in which he willingly gave himself for us. Now, if you're still truly amazed by what God did in sending his Son into this world, and still puzzled at how that could have taken place, remember the words of the angel to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 37, where the angel says, For with God nothing shall be impossible. Let's look at the two natures in Christ. Our catechist says, Thus he is also the true seed of David, and like his brethren, his brothers, in every respect, yet without sin. We have found out already that Christ did not cease being God when he entered into the virgin's womb and became man. And we have learned that from Mary he took his human nature, so that he was the seed of the woman, and without the inherited sin of Adam, that we all passed down to our children, and we have even seen a little of the process of virginal conception, the truly miraculous event through which the Holy Spirit brought about Mary's pregnancy. So what then are the results of that? Our catechist tells us that when the Lord Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he was the true seed of David, and he was like us. And yet there was one very important respect in which he is very different from us. Let's think about it. He was the true seed of David. In Romans, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was the Messiah. The Jews were expecting a Messiah, of course, but most of them were expecting simply an anointed religious leader, a warrior who would lead them to victory. The thought that God himself would enter this world to be their deliverer himself was totally alien to their thought processes. That's why they rejected him. Yet he was the true seed of David. He was the fulfillment of the covenant promise that God had made to David the king. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would sit and reign on David's throne. The true seed of David. And he's like us. 
in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. As I've already said, just like us, he was hungry, he was sad, he wept, he experiences our infirmities. And there's something here that could almost pass us by if we're not careful. Because of his humanity, Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, is my brother. He has carried our humanity into heaven. And because of this, we too, being in him, can also enter heaven's glory. We have a brother in heaven. Hebrews 2 and verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Romans 8 and verse 29. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I heard of a preacher who titled a sermon, How to Be the Mother of Christ. He was being a bit tongue-in-cheek. He was basing his message on Mark chapter 3 and verse 32 to 35. We read there that a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they had said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus' answer in verse 33 is to say, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking round at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. We are the brothers of Christ. We are his family, his brothers and sisters by adoption. So God is our father. Christ is our elder brother, the firstborn, the natural son with a right of inheritance among many brethren. He is the true seed of David. He fulfills all the Davidic promises of the covenant. He is like us. And yet there's one very vital aspect in which he is not like us, and the Catechist points that out to us. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, we hear these words, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, there it is, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. There's one thing about our humanity that our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, did not partake in, and that is our sin. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. When we break the Ten Commandments on a daily basis, he never did that. Not once. He was without sin. And when he was in human form, he was the one and only person of whom God could say that he was well pleased. Let's sum up. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person, we call this the hypostatic union. Let's turn to R.C. Sproul for some help. He wrote, and I quote, The historic Christian understanding of the person of Christ is that he is one person who possesses two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Each nature retains its unique properties, and the two natures remain distinct 
though inseparably united in Christ's person. Thus, according to his divine nature as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God is omniscient, omnipotent, and so forth. According to his human nature, the incarnate Christ needs to eat food to survive, grows in knowledge, and so forth. Thus, R.C. Sproul. But what are the implications of this important doctrine for you and me? Well, we look at that in our next catechism class. When we ask in question 36, what benefit do you receive from the holy conception and the birth of Christ? Don't miss it. God bless.